Well, in the game of chess, you win by putting your opponent's king in checkmate. Checkmate is the place where the, the king is cornered and he has no moves left. As we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, what we've seen over and over is that the religious leaders were trying to get Jesus in checkmate. Through their questions, through their traps, they thought they had the king cornered and that Jesus had no moves left. As we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 20, what we're going to find is Jesus tells us that he knows the game they were playing. In fact, what he tells them is, uh, just when you think you've won, you're going to find the tables are turned. And you're the one, the enemies of Christ are the ones who will be in checkmate as they have no moves left to make. I invite you to look with me in your Bible at Luke chapter 20, where I want to begin by reading the parable that Jesus tells in verses 9 through 19. It says, And he began to tell the parable, to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he rented it out to the vine growers. And he went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and he will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, for they feared the people, and they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Now, when it says that they understood that Jesus was speaking this parable about them, against them, it's because the Jewish leaders knew the scriptures. And in Psalm chapter 80 and in Isaiah chapter 5, God has used the image of the vineyard to describe Israel throughout their history. As you read Isaiah 5, 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Isaiah 5, 1 and 2 tells us, My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a, a, vine, a wine vat in it, and he, and he respected, and he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So the picture here is of Israel, where God says, I took the choicest land, and I planted the choicest vine in it. He said, I prepared the soil. I removed all the rocks so there would be no hindrances to growth. I, I built a wall and a tower for protection. I prepared a vat for the harvest. But what I received in turn was rejection and rotten fruit. As Jesus is reviewing this history of Israel's rejection, he, he starts by saying there were servants. These stand for the prophets that he sent. 
He said he had sent prophets to announce the coming of the promised Messiah, but rather than receiving them, listening to the message and and receiving the promised one, uh, what they did was they mistreated them, they rejected them, they even killed them. As you look at a parallel account of this parable in Matthew chapter 21, verse 35 there in Matthew, says, and the vine growers took his slaves and they beat one. They killed another and they stoned a third. And that's an exact description of what happened with some of the prophets. Amos was beaten with clubs. Isaiah was one of many that was killed. He was killed by being sawn in half. Stephen was stoned to death. And God could have rightfully brought judgment on these people for their rejection and rebellion. But instead, thankfully because of his long-suffering patience, his, his, his love for them, his mercy and grace, what he did was he kept sending one servant after another after another. Last week, as we were in Luke chapter 20 in verses 3 through 4, we saw where Jesus asked him, why did you reject John the Baptist? John the Baptist was one of the prophets. John the Baptist was uh, the main messenger to come before the promised Messiah. As we saw earlier in Luke chapter 7 in verses 26 through 27, Jesus said this about John the Baptist. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, but one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He said, John the Baptist was the one to point to me, the promised Messiah, and yet you rejected him as well. As you look at Israel, God has blessed them with prosperity. A fertile land, the blessings of God. But more importantly, what he said is you've been blessed with the message of God. I sent you prophets to reveal my word. And yet you rejected the prophets. You rejected my word. And as we're looking at this description of Israel, I want you to think for a moment about our country in America. We have a lot of parallels to Israel, don't we? We're a nation that's been blessed with a prosperous and fertile land. We've been given uh, so many blessings by the Lord. When it comes to his message, we have an abundance of Bibles. We have churches everywhere. We have the opportunity to hear the message of God. And yet, as you think of all that God has given to us, what have we done? What have we done as a country? Much like Israel, we've rejected God. We've borne rotten fruit in many ways. You look at our, our founding fathers. One was Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson, as he thought about our country and what was happening, he said, I tremble for my country when I realize that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Jefferson said those words more than 200 years ago. What would he say as he looked at America today? And as we've turned from God, as we've slipped farther and farther and rejected him and his ways, As we think of the judgment that we deserve, again, we can be thankful for God's mercy and grace. After all of their previous rejection, Israel deserved judgment, but God instead showed his long-suffering love and great grace as he sent his son. After the messengers, the Messiah came. And what Luke 20, 13 through 15 tells us is, the owner of the vineyard, these are the Jews, said, what shall I do? I'm sorry, this is God, the father. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers, the Jews, saw Jesus, it says they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And so what happens is, as Jesus Christ comes, 
instead of receiving him, what they say is, this is the only obstacle left. This is the promised one. This is the king. And if we get rid of him, then we get control. We get the kingdom. And so they decided to reject him. Does that sound like anyone you know? Maybe even some of us? You see, we know that that Jesus belongs on the throne of our life. We need to invite him into our heart. We need to give our lives over control of our little kingdom, so to speak, to him. And yet what some of us say is we're like, if I can just get Jesus off the throne, if I can get rid of him, then I can do whatever I want. I can live how I want rather than living like God calls us to. Think of the story of a, a battleship that was out at sea. And it was coming into an area where the captain knew there was danger of collisions from rocks and other ships and things. And so it was a fog-shrouded night. He was up on the bridge. He was keeping watch with others. He was peering into the hazy darkness looking for any sign of danger. And his worst fears were realized when in the distance he saw a light kind of starting to show up in the darkness. He immediately gets on the radio. He, he radios to this other, what he believes is a vessel on a collision course with him. And he says, this is Captain Jeremiah Smith. Please alter your course 10 degrees south. Over. The radio crackles back to life. And uh, to his amazement, the other party doesn't alter course. But instead, he says, Captain Smith, this is Private Thomas. Please alter your course 10 degrees to the north. Now, appalled at the audacity of this message, the, the captain shouts back over the radio, Private Thomas, this is Captain Smith. I order you immediately to alter your course 10 degrees south. Over. The oncoming light didn't budge, but a second response instead came over the radio. With all due respect, Captain Smith, I order you to alter your course immediately 10 degrees to the north. Over. At this point, the captain is furious. There's this insubordinate sailor who's so low in rank, he he just growls back over the radio. He says, Private Thomas, I can have you court-martialed for this. For the last time, I command you to alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a battleship. The last transmission comes back. Sir, with all due respect, I command you to alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am a lighthouse. You know, it may be that you're somebody here this morning that's seeing a light in the darkness telling you to alter your course. It's called the Word of God. The Bible says God's Word is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. And you may say, I'm the captain of my own destiny. I'm not going to let someone out there tell me to alter course. But friends, may I remind all of us here today that God is not some low-ranking sailor even sitting in a lighthouse. He's greater than even the commander-in-chief. He is the creator of the universe. He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He is God. And when he tells us to alter our course, when he shines a light in the darkness, it's because he says there are rocks that we are going to destroy ourselves upon if we do not come to him. And there are some like these religious leaders who have ignored God's repeated warnings to change course, to come to Christ. And so what Jesus tells them here in verse 16 is this isn't a game you're going to win. He, he says that you're going to lose everything, not just the kingdom that you're trying to grasp, but he says you're going to lose even your very lives. And we see their shocked reaction. As he says, this kingdom will be taken from you and given to another, meaning to the Gentiles. And they shout out, may it never be. Absolutely not. No way. 
That's what the Greek literally says. This is a double negative in the Greek text. It means never, ever. They say, what do you mean the kingdom is going to be taken from us? What do you mean the Gentiles will get to come in instead of the Jews? What do you mean that Rome, these Gentile people over us? But what Jesus says is, when you reject me as your Savior, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, he says, you will be destroyed. Verse 17 tells us as Jesus is saying this, it says he looked at them. It, it, it means he locks eyes with them. He, he looks them square in the eye and he says, don't miss this. He says, listen. And as he speaks the next words, he quotes from Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It's what we saw last time in Luke chapter 19 as Jesus was coming in at his triumphal entry. You'll remember that there Psalm 118 was quoted as well. We saw the words from Psalm 118.26 quoted in Luke 19.38. There it said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. As the people were crying out, they were saying, Lord, save us. Hosanna. And, and the religious leaders were saying, this is blasphemy. Tell, tell your disciples to, to be silent. And Jesus said, if they are quiet, even the stones will cry out. They knew that by quoting Psalm 118 and accepting that praise, Jesus was acknowledging, I am the Lord. I am God. I am the promised Messiah. And here he reiterates that because he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, when he says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And as Jesus says this, they know without a shadow of doubt what Jesus is claiming to be, the promised one. A literal translation of the Greek text here is Jesus is the head of the corner. Some translations use the word capstone. Others use the word cornerstone. Now, in our day, when a building is built, they will have a cornerstone. And a cornerstone is more of a ceremonial function in our day. You'll see things, you know, on buildings. It'll often have the date. There will sometimes be a plaque that has the names of the individuals who funded the building or were responsible in government, uh, you know, the commissioners or others who approved that building. And so we, we know what a cornerstone looks like. But in Jesus' day, the cornerstone was a foundational stone. The whole building used to rest on. It was anchored, and the whole building was aligned from the cornerstone. It wasn't just ceremonial. Webster's Dictionary defines a cornerstone this way. The stone which lies at the corner of two walls and serves to unite them. Specifically, a stone built into the corner of the foundation of an important edifice as the actual starting point. The starting point of the building. Now, if you've read the, the, if you've read the epistle of Ephesians, you know in Ephesians 2.20 that Jesus is called the cornerstone. The apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see, we're sitting in a building right now, here at the 410 campus. Others at Wayside are out at the, the you know, Stone Oak location. And, and you may think in terms of the church being the buildings that we come into, but that's not how the Bible defines the church. The church is not a, a physical structure. It is the living stones that are made up of all of us who are believers in Christ. We are the church. And the foundation of our fellowship is Jesus Christ. 
And it's his word that everything is aligned from. All of our beliefs, our doctrines, the way we walk, everything that we do as a church is lined up against this stone, Jesus Christ. When Jesus is called the capstone, this is another vivid picture of who he is. As you look at this this slide, you see that last stone that is being lowered into place. That's called the capstone or the keystone. And in architectural terms, when you would build an arch and you would lay this capstone in place, the scaffolding would be removed and then the rest of that stones would settle against it. It became the supporting stone for the whole structure. And as we think in terms of, of the way they would build back then, there was something called the tremble test. Because when you were building this, this structure, as they were ready to remove the scaffolding, what they would do is they would take the architect, the one who designed it. They would take the, the lead foreman, the one who oversaw the work that was done, and they would place these people under the arch as the scaffolding was removed. Now, you can picture why it's called the tremble factor. Because if you did not do a good job designing it or constructing it, that thing would collapse and you would be crushed. Now, OSHA today would never allow that to happen, but it was a great way to make sure that the the building was sound. Well, as believers in Christ, we don't have to tremble when Jesus is the capstone because the foundation is solid. The Bible tells us that when we build our house on the rock, it doesn't matter what kind of storms come, but the people of the world who build it on the shifting sand, great will be the fall of those buildings. And so Jesus says that you as a believer in Christ do not have to tremble. The non-believer, though, does because they will be crushed by the stone. As you think in terms of what is said more about this picture of Christ being the stone, this is out of the book of 1 Peter 2. It says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord in coming to him, As to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. Now, for the non-believer... It says this, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. 1 Peter 2, 3 through 8. Now in that passage, we see Jesus is called the living stone. It means that the story is not over when it comes to Christ. When they rolled that stone over the tomb after Jesus was crucified and buried in the tomb, you'll remember that didn't end the story. Three days later when they rolled the stone away, they found Christ was not in there. He had risen from the dead. And, and he, the story continues for you and I as well because after Jesus walked the earth for 40 days appearing to more than 500 witnesses, it said he ascended into heaven where he's waiting to return. He will rapture those who are Christians to to come with him to heaven. And then at the second coming of Christ, he will return physically to the earth where he will inaugurate the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign where he will be physically seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, things that we've talked about all throughout uh, the Gospel of Luke earlier in this series. And where this parable ultimately ends in terms of this kingdom they were looking for is found in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. 
Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If you're here today and you've rejected the rock, Jesus Christ, then you need to tremble because there will be a day that comes where that stone will crush you in judgment. But for those who believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we do not have to fear. 1 Peter 2.6 told us, And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Remember I told you about the double negative earlier? Well, there's a double negative there in 1 Peter 2.6. When it says you will never be disappointed, it it means never, ever. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he says the foundation is secure. Your name is in the book of life. You cannot lose your salvation. And you will be with the Lord when when the millennial kingdom and then into eternity occurs. You will be with him, welcomed. These words that we have seen here in Luke... 2017 are found there in Peter, and they all come from Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. These same words are found in Acts chapter 4 and verses 7 through 11. Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin, where they were questioning him about Jesus. And he quoted again from Psalm 118. And he said, the Messiah has come, but you missed him. No, they were looking for a military messiah. They wanted one who would usher in and inaugurate the kingdom now, overthrow Rome, and set up the kingdom here on earth. But what God said is, I'm the architect. I'm the one who designed the plans. And I I have a greater plan than what you see. Because Jesus came to redeem mankind, not just to set up an earthly kingdom that would pass away over a period of time. He said, I came to save all men and women. I gave my very life on the cross, dying to pay the penalty of death for sin so that you could be welcomed into heaven, so that you could become a part of the family and spend eternity with me. But these who wanted Jesus dead, he says, when you reject me, you will be rejected. You will be judged. You see, Jesus is either the source of our salvation or the stone over which we stumble. We read there in 1 Peter 2 where it says that Christ is the stone of stumbling. And the word used there is a combination Greek word. One of the words is lithos. Lithos describes uh, a loose stone in the path. Have you ever been walking along and you kind of trip over something? There's some kind of rock or loose, you know, and you, you almost fall flat on your face. Well, that's what a lithos is. It's a loose stone in the path. Now, I told you it's a combination word because proskomados is the other part of the word, and that word means to cut against. And so it's not just a little pebble that you fall over. It describes this massive rock that will crush you. And so when it comes to who Jesus Christ is, he says, I'm the rock in the road. And he says, when you come to me, you have a choice. One of two choices. You either accept me, Receive me as the promised one, the Savior who died for you, and you will be accepted, received into heaven. Or you reject me, and you will be rejected. You will go down the broad path of destruction. As Revelation 20 says, there is a day where those who stand before him in judgment, the great white throne judgment, all of those will be sent to the lake of fire. One of two choices. I'm the source of salvation, 
or I'm the stone of stumbling that sends you to your destruction. Now, there's not a third choice. Sometimes people say, well, I want to be neutral. I haven't, you know, I'm neutral. Well, that means you've rejected Jesus. You don't get to add a third option. It's either this or this. You receive him or you reject him. And if you don't receive him, then you've chosen to reject him. You see, in John 14, 6, Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. He says there's only one path to heaven, and that's through the cross of Christ that became that bridge that was laid over the chasm of sin that separated us from God. And he said you either walk across the cross and receive me, or you reject me, and you are rejected. As we look at this passage, these religious leaders choose to reject Jesus. Instead, what they do is they look for a way to try to trap him again. Look at verse 20. It says, So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. So it says there are moles in the group. They literally plant spies who pretend to be followers of Jesus. And they walk around and they try to look holy. And, and as you look at verse 21, look at, look at all the fake flattery they're piling on him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any. But you teach the word of God in truth. <laughs> I love these guys. And then they think they're going to spring their trap. Look at what they say. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There it is. That's the checkmate question. These guys have sat up all night long saying, how do we get Jesus? They've searched social media. They've looked at Facebook. They've looked at all his Twitter. They've looked at everything he's ever done, saying, is there something we can discredit Jesus for? Now, that wasn't in existence back then. But what they're doing is they're looking at every way they can to trap Jesus, and they say, this guy's perfect. Of course he was. He was the son of God. The Bible says that he was sinless. He never committed any wrong. And so they can't find a way to besmirch his character. They can't find a, a legitimate charge against him. So then they rack their brains and they say, here it is. Here is the question that leaves the king no moves. Because once we put him in this place and we ask him about taxes, he's caught. Remember Al Capone, the, the mobster, was caught with taxes, right? That's how they finally got him in jail. And so here they say to Jesus, okay, Lord, we have a question for you, and there's only one of two answers. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Rome or not? Yes or no? And they say, if he says yes, well, then the crowds are going to kill him. Because remember, Rome is the suppressing government in power. The, the people didn't want to support the, the enemy by paying taxes to them. There were people called the zealots. One of his disciples was a zealot. They would kill anyone who worked with or for Rome. And so if Jesus stands up and says, yeah, pay the Romans taxes, the crowds turn against Christ. And if Jesus says, no, don't pay the Romans taxes, well, then the Romans will come in and kill Christ. If you look ahead to uh, Luke 23, 2, you'll see that when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, one of the false charges that they brought to him, they said to Pilate, this man says, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus never said that, but that's the charge where they say, we know the Roman governor will put you to death if you say, don't pay taxes to Caesar. So they think that Jesus is cornered. They ask the question, they fist bump each other. 
They mouth the words, checkmate. He has no move. He's dead either way. Billy Graham tells the story of a master chess champion who was walking through an art gallery one day. As he was walking through, he was admiring the various paintings, and, and one particular painting caught his eye because as he looked at it, it was, it was two people playing a game of chess. And as he looked closely, one of the individuals represented Satan. And he had this, this happy look on his face. And the other one showed this young man who was distraught, staring at the board, hands in his head. And the, the title of the painting was called Checkmate. Checkmate. There's this look of glee on the face of the enemy. And the other one had a, a look of panic on the young man because as, as he looked at the painting, this, this man was in checkmate. And so this, this chess champion studies the painting. He, he notes the hopelessness of the man, the smug satisfaction of Satan, the enemy. As he turns his gaze to the, check, to the chessboard, he, he admires the way the artist has rendered the, the various pieces. And as he's looking at the various pieces and the setup of the board, he suddenly shouts out, wait, wait, it's not checkmate. He looks and he says, the king has one more move to make. And he says, when the king makes the move, the, the, it's Satan who will be in checkmate. Friends, with Jesus Christ, the king always has one more move to make. Satan, you'll remember, when Christ was killed on the cross, said, checkmate, I won. But then Jesus was buried in the tomb, and three days later, he came out alive. And Jesus said, you did not win, I did. I conquered sin and death and you. And you may be here this morning, and you have friends, a loved one, a family member, or some person you care for dearly who is sick or has received a terminal illness. This time of the year is difficult on a lot of families. If you've lost loved ones like I have, both of my parents are home with the Lord, then you go through a season like this and you think about death and how somebody you love isn't here. But I want to remind you that as believers, death is not the end for a Christian. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of new life because with the king, there's always a next move. Our loved ones who knew the Lord are with him in heaven, more alive today than ever before. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when when the world looks like it's falling apart and you're hopeless, what God says is the king still has a move to make. This isn't the end. I'm coming back. And I will make the world right. I will bring justice. I will restore the world to its perfect created order when the new heavens and the new earth are created. The king always has another move to make. And as we look at this passage, Jesus the king has another move to make. They say, check, mate. But look at what Jesus does in verses 23 through 26. But he detected their trickery. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. So he says, does anybody have a denarius? Well, what's a denarius? This is one. This is an actual denarius from the days of Jesus. And it was a coin that was used to pay people. A denarius was a common labor or soldier's wage for a day. 
And it was also the coin that was used to pay the, the tax that you owed to Rome. Every person who was 13 years of age or older had to pay Rome a denarius. And as you look at a denarius, that is the image of Tiberius. Tiberius was the Caesar, the Roman ruler in power during the days of Jesus. So this is an actual denarius that would have been used during the days of Christ. And on there is an inscription. And what it says is, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And so the reason the Jews hated Carrying coins like this was a number of reasons. It reminded them that Rome was in power. We were having to use Rome's currency. But also they believed that any image was, was idolatry. Remember in the temple when God gave the plans, there were to be no images of anything. And if you were a Jew, you had to carry these coins up into the temple. It's why there were money changers where they would change out the Roman coins to use Jewish coins in the temple because it was blasphemous to have these idolatrous images up on the temple mount. And it was also blasphemous to have that statement on there that they were gods. When it says that Tiberius was the son of the divine Augustus, it means he's a god. And so what Jesus says is, who has a coin? And he holds it up. He says, this is what you want to pay. This is what you have to pay your taxes with. So whose image is on it? And they say Caesar's. And he says, well, if the guy's image and name is on it, then who does it belong to? And they say Caesar. And he says, good. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But then he says something that is deeper in the passage that maybe you didn't see. He says, give to God what is God's. Now, what's he talking about? He's just used the picture of the image of Caesar on a coin. If you've ever read Genesis 127, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You and I, as human beings, bear the image of God. We are created in what's called the Imago Dei, Latin words for the image of God. Every single person who has ever lived, man, woman, boy, or girl, Jew, Gentile, any other race, creed you can come up with, bears the image of God. Now, not everybody gets home to God, only those who receive Jesus Christ, because he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But what he tells to the Jews is this, each of you are like a coin bearing an image and a name. And the name and the image that you bear is that of the eternal father, God. And he says, so who do you belong to? Whose image is on you? And they say, God's. And he says, well, then who does your life belong to? God. And so he says, well, give to God what is God's. Have you given your life to God? You see, now, somebody may be sitting here this morning saying, but Roger, God doesn't want my life because I made a mess of it. My life is a wreck. I've done all kinds of things that I can't be proud of. And if, if God were to look at me, he, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. Well, I've got a uh, $20 bill here. Who would like a $20 bill? Oh. <laughs> all right. Well, my son's first. Well, well, I'm not ready for you yet. <laughs> This is what it's like at home all the time. <laughs> all right, so this is a $20 bill. You want it, right? Yeah. 
Do you still want it? Yes. <laughs> but I crumpled it up. I stepped on it. It's dirty. It's, it's, it's kind of messed up. Why, why do you still want it? Yeah, well, you're a smart boy. <laughs> Must have a smart dad. I don't know. We didn't rehearse this, by the way. <laughs> but he's right. It's still worth something, isn't it? It's still worth $20, even when it's broken, even when it's dirty, even when it's messed up. Now, a $20 bill bears the image of Andrew Jackson, so that's, that's not important for this illustration, but this is. We bear the image of God. And you can look at your life and say, but I'm broken. I've made a mess. I'm dirty. I've been in the muck and the mire of the world. Who would want me? God does. Because God says, you bear my image. You still have value. You have eternal value because God is eternal. And so he says in Romans 5, 8, he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He said, you may see yourself as worthless, as dirty and broken and something to be thrown away. But he says, I see you as something worth dying for, leaving my throne in heaven, coming to earth in order to give you the gift of eternal life. Now, you said you wanted this. How does it become yours? Well, show me. How's it yours? What do you have to do? I have to take it. Whose is it now? Mine. Okay, it's yours. <laughs> now you wish you sat on the front row. And, <laughs> and his sisters wish they had spoken up faster, too. That's what God says to us, isn't it? He says, I have a gift for you called eternal life. And he says, it's available to everybody. Now, all of you may say, well, Roger, I want a 22. Unlike God, who's, who's you know, infinite in his riches, I'm not. I don't, have, I don't have enough money to give all of you a $20 bill. But God does. And he says, I have a gift for you. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but we'll have the gift of eternal life. He says, you receive it from me. You don't work to earn it. It's great that you're here in church today, but it's, it's not sitting here in church that, that gets you saved. It's not doing good things that gets you saved. It's by receiving the gift that God gave to us. In John 1.12, it says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. We don't earn anything when it comes to earning our way home to heaven because the Bible says we're sinners. Romans three twenty three says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, says Romans three ten. Because of that, we have a problem, which is why Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, what we earn, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, it tells us. And the way we receive God's great gift to us is found in Romans 10.9. Because it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so as we talk about the gift of God, his son coming and being this rock, the foundation of our faith, 
He says, if you will receive me, if you will stand in faith upon the rock, if you will walk across that cross that I died on, then I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, said Jesus in John 14, 6. And as he was dying on that cross in John 19.30, you can read in your Bible where it says, as Christ was about to breathe his last, he said, it is finished. The Greek word used there is tetelestē. It literally means paid in full. What was paid in full? The penalty of sin. The wages of sin was death. And Jesus said, I am paying the penalty in full for your sins. I have died in your place. My blood is available to wash away your sins. But it is only good if you will come up and take it. If he didn't come and receive that from me, then it was still mine. But when he took the gift, it's his. And God offers you that free gift of salvation today if you will receive him. Christ is the rock and the road. You either receive him and will be welcomed home in heaven one day, or you reject him and one day will be rejected by him in judgment. If you're here today and you've never accepted God's gift of new life, I invite you to do so. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But you do have to humble your heart and say to God, God, I know I'm a sinner. The word sin just simply means you've made mistakes. You've fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And you're acknowledging to God, I know that I've made mistakes. Whether you've lied, taken a cookie done anything else in your life that was disobedient, God says that's sin and you owe a penalty of death. And he says, as a sinner, you can't pay the penalty yourself. I did that for you. And if you would like my payment in your place, then receive it. As Romans 10, 9 said, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you will be saved. And if you'd like to do that, I'm going to end today by praying a prayer. You can bow your head where you're seated. You can pray pray this prayer in the privacy of your own heart and mind. But you have to come before God and say to him, I'm a sinner. I recognize I owe a penalty I could not pay. And I thank you, Jesus, that you paid it for me. And today I'm accepting your gift, your gift of eternal life. If you'd like to do that, then I invite you to bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life, and because of that, I I know I owe a penalty. A penalty of sin called death. I thank you, Jesus, that you left your throne in heaven to take on flesh and blood so that you could go to the cross and shed your blood in my place to pay that penalty of death that I owed. I believe you're who you said you are the Son of God, the promised Messiah. I thank you that you took my place, dying for me. I believe that you were buried in a tomb, but you rose from the dead three days later, showing you were who you said you were, the Son of God, that you defeated sin and death and Satan, that you proved you were the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I thank you, God, that you've welcomed me into your family, making me a son or a daughter of yours. I accept your gift of new life today. Would you help me, Lord, to live my life in a way that reflects that I'm a son or daughter of yours? I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ.
you prayed that prayer, we're going to have prayer leaders. I'm going to invite the prayer leaders to come up to the front now. We would love to talk to you. We would love to, to make sure you understand that step of faith that you just took. And we'll begin to help you to grow in your new walk with the Lord. For the rest of us who know Jesus is our Savior. This is a time of the year where he calls on us to go into the world and share the good news of who he is. We don't have a closing song today. I want to wish you a happy new year. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.